hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a terrific show today, and we are going to dedicate it to Australia. Many of our listeners are from Australia, and we have a tremendous opportunity with this collaboration between uh, the United States and Australia to highlight some uh, really some wonderful activities. Previously on the program, we've had many Australians, uh, including Dr. Melissa McCann, uh, who's leading a class action against the Therapeutic Goods Administration of Australia on concealing uh, vaccine safety issues. And in this uh, issue, we are going to spend the show with Dr. Chris Neal, uh, who is the president of AMPS, which is the Australian Medical Professional Society. And this is really the right way to do it. This group has uh, has come together, and uh, they are all doctors with uh, executives helping them, and they are advancing uh, the cause for medical freedom, for uh, integrity, and for transparency with respect to what's happened with COVID-19, the failure of treating patients early to prevent hospitalization and death, and then the rollout of the ill-fated COVID-19 vaccines, uh, the concealment of safety problems, mandating these vaccines, and then the double down and triple down that we saw really across all the world, uh, but it wasn't uh, as bad in so many places as it was in Australia. Australia appeared to be the prototype testing ground really for totalitarianism as we see it today. So we're gonna spend time with Chris Neal and um, we'll keep you updated with respect to developments in Australia. Many of you have seen recently uh, Dr. Asim Malhotra from the UK, young uh, cardiologist, iconic figure in the media in uh, June of 2023, make an Australian tour. Uh, previously, m- myself, uh, uh, true crime author John Leake, Pierre Corey, Melissa McCann, uh, Clive Palmer, um, Craig Kelly, uh, James McDonald and Sue Ellen Wrightson. Uh, we all ma- really made a huge push, swing through the uh, you know the very various cities in Australia to bring the message of truth with respect to COVID nineteen and where we are today. So, a lot of exciting news. Now back over to the United States. Uh, we've had considerable progress. I want to update the audience that the Johnson. And Johnson, a Janssen adenoviral vaccine has been pulled off the market. Interesting uh, volley of plays with respect to um, uh, FDA request for removal, a volunteering of removal, and then finally stripping of the emergency use authorization for Janssen. Many wish that would happen for Pfizer and Moderna as well. We've seen steadily college campuses drop the COVID-19 vaccine mandates with little explanation. Uh, the same thing for corporate America. Uh, we've seen uh, those on the other side still push for more COVID-19 vaccination, despite 
uh, Omicron uh, grinding out to a low ebb uh, without uh, significant rates of hospitalization. And the vast majority of Americans have been through COVID now. They have positive serologies as a proxy for prior infection. We're not seeing severe cases in our office, but we certainly are picking up the pieces with respect to COVID-19 vaccine injuries, largely uh, uh, various forms of temporary injuries, disabilities, and death. Probably the most important paper to quote is by Schmeling and colleagues from Denmark. Only 4.2% of all doses, the high-risk batch, account for the vast majority of complications. That explains why so many people are fine. They've taken the shots and they're fine, but sadly, a small group has been significantly injured. It is a product problem whether it be hyperconcentration of messenger RNA, cDNA plasmids, or other contaminants, there's no doubt there's a product safety problem, and none of the regulatory agencies have examined this. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson did ask our CDC specifically to look at lot-to-lot variability, and the CDC said they found no issues there. Well, with that, um, we're going to move on to our interview with Dr. Chris Neal from Australia. He's a cardiologist like me, and we have a lot in common but you're going to really be, I think, impressed with Chris and what he's done with his group in Australia. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. One of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is healthy cell. And the healthy cell line is extensive. I typically focus on the microgel technology. Three major products here. Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with an upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, and I've been diligent with the Immune Super Boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're back in Australia, and I have on the program for the first time Dr. Chris Neal, fellow cardiologist, really a hero for all the people in Australia, people worldwide been following Chris Neal. He's a super good guy, uh, grew up in Melbourne, went to Melbourne University, studied medicine there. Remember in Australia, they get an MBBS he went on and trained in medicine, cardiology in Adelaide. Adelaide is uh, kind of a, it's near the ocean. I've been there before, uh, but it's, it's, it's really pretty arid, uh, almost desert-like. I really liked Adelaide when I was there. It's a very interesting place. Received his PhD in addition to training in cardiology, and he studied a condition called Takasubo cardiomyopathy. Some of you may know that as the broken heart syndrome. He went off to the UK, as many Australians do. I got additional training in cardiac imaging. So he came back to Australia to his hometown in Melbourne and was really managing advanced heart failure, uh, doing advanced cardiac imaging. And in many ways, Chris was like me. I think he was minding his own business, doing great work in cardiology, advancing the field, and then COVID-19 struck. And I, 
I asked Chris to come on the program to tell us about censorship and reprisal among practicing Australian physicians as the pandemic came in. And I wanted to give an Australian doctor his own chance to tell his side of the story. We've heard so much in America. Chris, welcome to McCullough Report. No, thank you very much, Peter. It's amazing. Thank you. Well, let's set the stage. Uh, what was going on in late 2019 and early 2020? What were you doing? And, and then what happened to you? Yeah, so I was probably um, seven or so years into my post. Um, I developed a lot of uh, services for disadvantaged patients with heart failure, and I was continuing to do that in the public service, doing a bit of private practice as well. Um, I was continuing research, uh, carrying out some research grants, uh, some trials that I had um, started. In 2020, it became incredibly difficult to just continue things as they are, um, but we can talk about that. I guess 2019, it was it was business as usual. Okay. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It was business as usual. And and what did you know as the first, I mean, what were the first changes that happened in your clinical practice in Melbourne in 2020? When did they happen? Yeah, so um, March, March 20th or thereabouts, uh, everything really changed in the hospitals. Um, and it may well have been mirrored where you were. Uh, there was a huge focus and the idea of getting ready for a, an overwhelming influx of COVID-19 disease. Uh, in Melbourne, I was in a hospital which happened to uh, treat the, the largest number of COVID-19 patients for 2020. Um, we had people getting off cruise ships like the Ruby, uh, not the Ruby Princess, the Diamond Princess, um, and people coming really bringing their COVID-19 uh, disease uh, as travellers. That was what we called the first wave. That was March through April, and it died down pretty quickly. Our second wave was roughly August, I want to say, uh, and Melbourne was definitely the epicentre of that. Um, so we were um, we were able to treat people uh, pretty well. I think in our local practice, um, intubation was relatively minimised. Um, we had uh, you know, a, um, a death rate at the end of 2020, uh, to death total was still well under 1,000. I think it was about 800 um, for the whole of 2020. But the impact on clinical practice was really massive. Um, uh, in, in my hospital, we're heavily um, going towards um, telehealth. I didn't see my patients face to face nearly as much as I wanted to. And as you know, as a heart failure physician, any chronic disease physician, face-to-face -face is so uh, so valuable. Uh, so that changed. And yeah, the whole, the whole thing um, had a massive impact. Mask wearing kicked in for us probably in the second wave more. Um, and I think generally, uh, I think job satisfaction was was challenging for many clinicians uh, in in Melbourne because we we're also uh, dealing with massive lockdowns uh, in Melbourne, Australia, uh, Victoria in particular. I had to drive home because I live outside the city, about half an hour outside the city. I had to drive home through what was being called the Ring of Steel. So <laughs> I'd go to the hospital, I'd drive home in my scrubs, and police with military would pull me over. Well, I would go through a checkpoint. 
to get home through quite a long winter and um and into spring it was very you know it was incredibly impactful um i found that uh yeah very disturbing indeed so did this happen every day chris oh for, well we had hundreds of days of lockdown um it was brutal in melbourne it was it was justified uh by our top politicians at a 11 a.m briefing every day um and yeah it was but what did this effect, what, what did this effectively mean so you described yourself but what did this mean for your family being locked down so yeah we we live in outside the town outside the, the city so that was relatively good for us we were able to uh, do much more in a, in the local uh, town uh, drive because we're we're essentially classified as rural uh, but in the city, it was really difficult. Uh, people were really expected to stay home, uh, except for local shops. Uh, there was this whole essential and non-essential workers thing going on for much of that time. Uh, so I think, yes, the impact was far more in the city, and I'm thankful we were just outside of that limit. So so the people in the rural areas were unaffected. Chris, we heard something about if someone had COVID, there was a five-kilometer perimeter or do, did that actually exist or very good point yeah um there well there was generally limits based on how far you could go there was lim limits on how much you could exercise it was one or two hours a day and what quite uniquely we had curfews so we had curfews uh at night you couldn't actually go out and on one occasion when i was actually visiting a patient, I was pulled over by the police. What did they do? Well, they were very reasonable. I'm very thankful. Uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of good police, as you know. Um, so they were they, they listened to my story and they said, just um, just make sure you've got documentation uh, when you're making a visit like this. Um, but police you know later particularly later police um overreach and, and even police brutality in melbourne australia became a thing and and i don't doubt you and your listener you and your listeners would have seen evidence of that did, did that really happen i mean we saw these pictures of street riots and you know melbourne's such a beautiful city uh, i was just there uh, a few months ago and i just couldn't imagine it becoming such a such a riotous place and just the brutality did that really happen yeah it was about september 21 uh so fast forwarding all the way to the mandates um it was it was very real um one of the major construction uh groups the cfmeu um had taken a hard line not on the side of its members but on the side of the government and uh there was a lot of anger um construction workers were required to get uh, jabbed double jabbed before turning up to work and this construction sector in victoria is really massive um so yeah a lot many of, of them took to the streets and that precipitated other groups in support um the general public through those months september november and december 2021 were, were very big in terms of a street movement in melbourne uh, it, however um, the coverage in the mainstream media really made that movement look extraordinarily small um, and 
you know, we, many of us would, would certainly say that at the at, 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 at the peak of that movement, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Melbourne alone. Wow. We saw some film, Chris, that looked pretty impressive. It seemed like a huge number. It's interesting. You know, I live in Texas, which is just a population just slightly greater than that of Australia. Obviously, Australia is a much larger landmass. But in Texas, you know, we had a few weeks where it was uncertain at first and the restaurants were closed. But before you knew it, we, we were largely back to normal. We were out jogging and, and you know, back to normal life. And um, we, we are waiting for a wave. In fact, at our convention center in Dallas, they had built a whole army hospital. And it was a huge mm. waste of money. They had about 1,200 cots and ventilators and IV bags. And, and there were no patients. It was a complete overreaction. We were sitting around. We had really nothing to do. They shut down the cath lab and the operating room. And uh, like you, I was still seeing my patients. And I was concerned about heart failure patients getting COVID, as I would be with a pneumococcal pneumonia or any other infection. Did you also have those concerns? You start to really worry about your, your sick patients? Yeah, look... Um I did. Um, I was uh, at the at the end of 2020 and in well into 2021. In terms of my chronic disease patients, a very small number had actually had COVID. Um, a small number had died, um, but you know, and and some of them. When I looked closely at the diagnosis, it was quite it was quite difficult to um, to say it was definitely COVID uh, because. Yeah, it was it was often very difficult. When you really look at the nitty-gritty, you see positive assays, negative assays. You I'm sure you would have seen the same. But it wasn't it wasn't a massive impact uh, on my own cohort. Very good. Did you lose any patients early on due to COVID? Not not particularly in my cohort. Uh when it came to vaccinations, I did unfortunately, uh which was one of the things which really um affected me. Um like what, what's, yeah, an, what's an example of a vaccine death that you you saw firsthand in your practice? So I saw um, se several vaccine deaths early, um, and the the key theme is that they are never attributed to COVID nineteen. Uh, one was a man who was uh, who had heart failure and who also had uh, cancer under long term treatment. Uh, he was being managed by an oncologist one week or within one week of his astrazeneca shot he presented with um blood clots but not just one you know say pulmonary embolism there, there were i understand it numerous blood clots he was at a private hospital um and with you know within a few days he had passed away it was then attributed to the fairly routine chemotherapy that he was on and the fact that he had cancer and I, I totally get that uh, cancer is prothrombotic and that, um, that very often we're dealing with multiple factors in a death. But I was not at all in agreement uh, when talking to this grieving family that, um, that the vaccine had no role in it whatsoever. Uh, that, that's, that's one example. Another example, I'll just give you one more, uh, a man who had toward the last three or so months of the year, he'd held out. He'd not felt comfortable. He was a renal dialysis patient. He'd held out against the vaccines 
but due to the the huge pressure which many times came from family as well as treating uh, treating staff um, he got his first dose i think it was about september now i um, i was ringing up for a telehealth appointment in about october i'd say and i got his son unfortunately his son told me that this man had passed away he'd got a stroke four days after that shot and three days later was palliated and passed away so i i think yeah yeah chris i was going to say you know i've chaired day safety monitoring boards dozens of times and you know a very common regulatory convention is anything within 30 days of an experimental product in this case a shot is just attributed to the product. That's it. That's one of the reasons why there's always 30 days of monitoring after the last dose in a trial. You know that if there was a heart failure trial and we are trying a new med, anything that happens 30 days after the end of the trial is attributed to the drug. Anything. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and in fact, you, I think the burden of proof should be to absolutely rule out that it had anything to do with well, the product. You, you get I hit have, by a butt, that's fine, but you but shouldn't yep. have to prove that it is. But Chris, I've had these conversations actually with the FDA and sponsors, and and the reason why they're so tight on anything after thirty days, even getting hit by a bus, we've used that example, because you know if a drug caused confusion or a partial seizure or something, and somebody mm-hmm. wandered out in front of a bus, or even uh, you know even a motor vehicle accident, uh, it, it, because we want to be cautious and conservative. We always ascribe it to the product, certainly within the first 30 days. We don't work our butts off to exonerate the new product. I mean, we should have all eyes on the new product. So especially ones yeah. that you know are known to cause blood clotting. Let's say the AstraZeneca adenoviral it, vaccine. Yeah. You know, I, it would, I'd, call it an, I'd call it an inversion of the burden of proof that we've seen. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Well, the first one I saw was in uh, 2021. And it was a woman who just had COPD, and that was it, um, mild just on some inhalers. And she took a shot one of um, a Moderna, I believe, and then shot two. And uh, she developed a, a, both an arterial and a venous blood clot syndrome in her body. Her legs became mottled. Mm-hmm. She had trouble breathing. She was hospitalized at a community center. She was placed on heparin. Uh, became very sick, lost a lot of weight. Uh, Things were unclear what happened in the hospital, anemia. Uh, And she partially recovers and she sees me in the office, Chris, and, uh, you know, her peripheral pulses are down. She looks mottled. She's short of breath. I I redo the imaging. She actually has, she's loaded with thrombi. She's basically loaded with thrombi. Mm. Um, By plethysmography, arterial system is down to the legs, venous system loaded with thrombi. So I put her on um, uh, anoxaparin, full dose. Uh, so people people listening, that's a, basically Lovenox injections twice a day. I think I even added aspirin. Um, she, she was in a walker. She also had a peripheral neuropathy. She couldn't feel much on her feet and hands. And, um, uh, and then I saw her one time back in the office 30 days later, and she's slightly better on the anticoagulation. And then the next call I get is about 60 days later, which is 90, 90 days after the event, and they find her dead at home. And mm. you know, so I filled out the VAERS report. That would be the D-A-E-N report, I believe, for you. So did you fill out those yeah. reports? Yeah, we do. Um, there's a lot of underreporting here. 
Well, you know, I have to tell you one other case that I just ran into. It's a, a man who uh, took the first shot of Moderna, and he's 68 years old, highly functioning consultant, no prior history of heart disease. He goes into fulminant heart failure relatively quickly, within about mm. eight hours of the illness. He's, he's uh, admitted to the hospital, gets diuretics initially, gets worse, is intubated. His care is escalated. He goes to a major U.S. medical center, uh, ends up uh, going on uh, ECMO, has a right and left uh, ventricular cyst device, very, very sick. Um, he ultimately gets a heart transplant. And wow. after the transplant, he uh, the he has a sternal wound infection or mediastinal infection has to be reoperated, uh, you know, washed, uh, sternum left open, healed by secondary intention. Um, goes through all this, and he's about, you know, gosh, I think he's about five months after this. He's literally been in a different city in the hospital fighting for his life, and he he contacts me. We actually have a Zoom call from a, a hotel room. He checked himself out of the hotel room and he's with his wife and he's really at his wit's end. He said, I'm a transplant patient now. I'm on the standard transplant drugs. And he said, they're telling me I have to take the second shot to stay in the transplant mm -hmm. program. Can you believe well, Yeah. I can. Uh, look, I can. Um, did they attribute the, the, whole, the whole thing to the first shot? They never did. They never oh attributed it to the first shot. Uh, fortunately, he was able, he held strong. This guy's a very intelligent man. He ended up having a stroke, um, fought through that, never took the second shot. Now it's about a year and a half later. He actually flew all the way to Dallas, and I saw him in the clinic. We took a, a, a picture together, and um, you know, I've asked him to gather his records. I think we just need to write up this case. And, yes, um, uh, we've I've seen this now several times. I'm I, he, I'm aware of he's one of two patients. We only have twenty, but there's two of them I'm aware of that were directly occurring after the vaccine. Both times the transplant center did not attribute it to the vaccine. Both times the transplant center actually wanted more vaccinations. Yeah, look, I'm I'm aware of one um, case on shore here, um, very similar. A fulminant myocarditis ending up in a transplant without attribution. But that's not the common picture I'm seeing with myocarditis. So in my practice, I'm mm -hmm. seeing case after case. Uh, most of it's chest pain, effort intolerance. It's a myopericarditis. They have some effort intolerance. When we do the evaluation, if we catch it early, we can find elevations of troponins and SD segment changes on the EKG. But largely what we're seeing is small areas of late gadolinium enhancement, uh, less than 15% mm. of the left ventricle, uh, you know, characteristically kind of up at the base of the heart, lateral wall, base of the heart. And it's yep. so it's so unclear what to do about it. You know, there's a the recent paper from Yale, it's on my um, my Substack and out on social media, showing in about 17 uh, teenagers admitted to Yale for myocarditis, that 80% of them at 200 days, they still have abnormal MRIs. They're, they're, not, yep. they're not clearing up. And, and the question for you, Chris, is, is there hope at that stage or is that going to be permanent scar? I would say it's likely permanent scar. Uh, and yes, there's hope, however, because uh, you, you want to avoid an inflammatory cardiomyopathy and, and a lot more long-term um, long morbidity. 
So I guess that means close clinical monitoring and, and treatment. I was but I don't in, think there's hope in total reversal of the scar, not, not at all. Right. I was impressed with um, uh, work done by Bruckman and colleagues from an MRI center mm -hmm. in Germany. I was interested in um, kind of late gadolinium enhancement patterns seen in marathon runners and other people who exercise. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I was, used to be a big marathon runner. And okay. what Bruckman showed is if, if it's a non-ischemic pattern, I mean, mm. it's not epicardial coronary disease, and it's sufficiently small. The, the heart can remodel this, that, that in fact, um, you know, there probably is some scar, but it may be sufficiently small. It just doesn't, it's, it's below the limit of resolution on an MRI. And, mm. uh, and in fact, he, he showed that, and I've seen this in my clinical practice. I've seen some COVID-19 vaccine-induced uh, myopericarditis, in a sense, normalize an MRI. Now, I, I'm not getting complete MRI follow-up for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't know what to do clinically. And number two, you know, I don't want to keep administering gadolinium over and mm. over. So, uh, so we're, we're, we're fairly stuck on this COVID-19 vaccine-induced myopericarditis. Do you think uh, these deaths that we're seeing reported in athletes on the playing field, do you think those, at least some of them, are due to COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis? Yeah, I mean... It you know, well, it, it uh, it's jumped it jumped up as as early as you know January through March 2021, didn't it? To a ridiculous level of I think over 100 a month when averaged out, uh, having only been less than 100 a year. Um, I had to say, you know, I certainly suspected that was the case, and I think that's quite reasonable when when you know that a new therapeutic has been rolled out so widely. What you know, to test that hypothesis, we'd need individual patient data. And in the case of athletes, um, I don't think there's a willingness to to get that. And yet, uh, I, I often think about the indemnity uh, issue there, um, where, where they're being uh, pushed towards vaccination by their leagues or their teams. What is the responsibility to make sure uh, that, that, they, that we all understand this risk? It's it's absolutely astounding. It's interesting you came up with this roughly tenfold rise. I recently had a paper with Dr. Polycretus from Italy, and uh, before COVID, a stable period. I think you know, 2000 to 2010, the number of cardiac arrests in the whole the whole European leagues, age under 35, pro and semi-pro, was 29 per year, and now that mm. number after the vaccines, Chris, 283 annualized. So it's roughly a tenfold increase. It's almost right on what you said. Mm, mm. So uh, what we're going to do now, Chris, is we're going to uh, take a pause for uh, for our sponsors, and then we're going to return back to the other side of the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. The wellness companies offering the Signature Series Spike Support formula. 
The wellness company supports this formula because it's designed to remove spike protein from the body in its design, in terms of its mechanism of action. The accumulation of spike protein occurs because of repeated COVID-19 vaccination and COVID-19 illness. The spike protein stays in the body a long time, causes heart, brain, body tissue damage, as well as blood clotting. The spike support formula is designed to help the body catabolize the spike protein, begin to remove it through its natural mechanisms. This product has been carefully sourced. Uh, it is all U.S. made, highest quality, non-GMO and non-vegetarian ingredients. No fillers in here, just the active substances. Let me give you what is in a standard serving size. Standard serving size is two capsules, and you would take two capsules twice a day. It includes natokinase, the principal uh, ingredient, 2,000 fibrinolytic units or 100 milligrams. Those are uh, equal in terms of uh, conversion. Selenium, 75 micrograms. Black sativa extract, 500 milligrams. Irish sea moss powder, 500 milligrams. Green tea extract, 150 milligrams. And dandelion extract, 50 milligrams. Why the other ingredients? The other ingredients are designed to help block the spike protein's effect on tissues, help tissues recover and repair. It's the best we have now when patients are in need. You can use our promotional codes or go through our banner bars on our site to get promotional codes and discounts on your purchase. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, Chief Scientific Officer of the Wellness Company and your host on The McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We are having a riveting interview with a young cardiologist. He is the bright, shining star of Australian cardiology, Chris Neal, trained uh, expert, MD, PhD, uh, heart failure, advanced imaging. And, and Chris, you have so much insight. You have so much clinical skill. And Americans were basically shocked to hear the stories of physician censorship and reprisal in Australia. Why don't you take us through what happened to you? You tell your side of the story and and, and let us understand what happened. Sure. Look, um, I think that um, what happened with, with the initial rollout of the vaccine is that everything changed. And what I mean is um, I had a lot of physician colleagues that I could speak frankly about with in late 2020, early, even early 21, uh, about our scientific disagreement with masking and lockdowns. That was fairly, uh, you know, fairly reasonable. Um, but going into the, the, the rollout, really everything changed somehow. Um, there was those who'd been sort of complaining didn't do so uh, as much and they complied. Um, I found that um, while I was very busy, certainly from February, March 21, trying to understand the vaccine on a really detailed and mechanistic level to the greatest extent I could, of course, different platforms. We had AstraZeneca in Australia. Don't think you did at that stage, but we had uh, initially Pfizer as our only mRNA. Pretty early on, uh, on uh, in Australia, I think 
AstraZeneca became the scapegoat because of the recognition of uh, a definite sort of thrombotic syndrome, TTS, um, and and cerebral, cerebral venous thrombi. So I think it was scapegoated, and, and there was a kind of a, a dual effect that many older people rolled up their sleeve to get AstraZeneca knowing it was associated with harms, um, but doing so for the greater good, thinking that they were uh, making a, an mRNA a good one, you know, a good shot available for a younger person. We had various uh, changes in, in recommendations re related to age. And then there was the perception, yes, if I got a Pfizer shot, I was, I was lucky. Um, that was really interesting. I don't think that was at all happening in the US. I was looking at, um, you know, intently at the US data because you had predominantly two mRNA, two mRNA shots. And my um, assessment of the Bayer's data showed me that roughly the same pattern, uh, often with thrombotic events and high, a very high death rate, was was visible uh, in in your situation, in your mRNA-dominated market. So I was not at all uh, buying, buying uh, A, that the mRNAs were better. And I was certainly uh, looking at the, the widespread sort of multi-system involvement of the reported adverse events. I was certainly not buying what was just held to by my colleagues, that this shot was going in your deltoid, deltoid muscle, staying there, except maybe going to a filtering lymph node, and doing what it was intended to do. I was not at all accepting that this wasn't distributing systemically. As I continued to watch this whole thing evolve, um, in addition to the horrific and unprecedented harms, uh, the whole thing of biodistribution um, hit me. And that was about May 21. Uh, that was, you may recall, from the Japanese Ministry of Health, a Freedom of Information request showing a rat study um, that showed the, the distribution of the lipid nanoparticles. That was really massive for me. Um, I, I tried to communicate this with colleagues. Uh, often it was just a shrug of the shoulder. Um, and, and overall, putting those things together, I, I, I could not observe in my colleagues as much as I would like to say I could. Uh, a real attempt to grasp and grapple with all this on a mechanistic level to really be understanding the situation and and uh, guiding their patients through it all. Meanwhile, in the uh, in the, the government sort of level, um, we were getting still getting very heavy um, sort of addresses. Uh, usually on a Friday afternoon, we were getting uh, the prime minister and, and the minister of health coming out in 2021 with a sort of a press conference, and the big theme was. The big theme was uh, was um, herd immunity. And um, have I got you there, Peter? I just want to check. Yes, yes, yeah, doing yes, fine. Right. I, I'm on mute because my dog's barking in the background. Oh, okay. No worries. I was hoping I hadn't dropped out. So the big thing was herd immunity. And I, you know, I felt this was being used to manipulate and essentially coerce Australians to doing the right thing. But then I think you'd agree with me, if, if you have a shot which can't alter transmission, then you really can't make an argument that it, it, along the lines of herd immunity being achieved. 
And sure enough, we were seeing that in places where um, where vaccine uptake was high. Uh, again, in Australia, I think we got to around the two thirds mark of um, two primary doses by about August, and it was becoming pretty clear that the government, uh, the governments, the state governments of Australia were marching lockstep towards mandates, and um, health was was number one. So I had held out and informed uh, my senior colleagues that I was not going to get the vaccination. A big part of it for me, I must say, was the idea that um, that aborted stem cell, uh, aborted fetal stem cell uh, products had been used in the development or testing of these available jabs. And so I freely communicated that conscience issue, um, you know, explaining how, you know, I, I could not let a, a government or authorities make decisions of conscience for me. Um, but overall, there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue. I was involved with um, CMN, the COVID Medical Network, which was um, the earliest the earliest body of, of clinicians and other interested parties actually starting 2020 and into 2021. Um, as a body, COVID Medical Network was, was doing quite a few things, um, but issued a letter called First Do No Harm in about July of 21. And it was a very well-reasoned um, and balanced letter with five or six main points. Um, it was not anti-vaccination, but it was, of course, um, highlighting, as, as is our duty, highlighting harms and the importance of informed consent in the light of those harms. Um, and I, th I think in on reflection, unfortunately, uh, COVID Medical Network was, was hit very hard uh, by the TGA, our, our Therapeutic Goods Administration, and other regulators. Um, and the, the three directors at the time all suffered reprisals. Um, so that was that was part of a broader picture of suppression of debate, um, and that related to I think the fact that our um, our main regulator of clinicians, that's APRA, Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency, uh, had issued a communication in March the 9th, twenty twenty one which literally 800,000-plus uh, clinicians would have received, and that was communicating to them that they were expected to not speak against the campaign, the government line, uh, on a state or federal level regarding the vaccine rollout. Uh, so that's been a very controversial uh, issue, but I think added to all the other, uh, all the other sort of issues that clinicians are dealing with, that's had a massive impact in in suppressing debate and free speech. Uh, later, so, so Chris, when, yeah. Chris, in March of 2021, the vaccines were, were only out in Australia probably two months. How did they know they were going to work? How did they know they were going to be safe? How, how could how could you not have some observation on how they're going to do and some discussion? Well, uh, absolutely. Um, it was it was not rational uh, and it's certainly not ethical and quite possibly, uh, I believe, not even legal for the for the regulator to do what it did. But I think the impact has been 
massive. I think uh, we had a lot of people in Australia frustrated that their doctors couldn't get out there in their scrubs or, or in their uniforms or with their stethoscopes on the steps of buildings, um, making their point of view clear. Uh, but on the flip side of that, um, I believe we're subject to some pretty, pretty severe um, kind of, uh, yes, yeah, suppression and censorship. Mm. Um, so give, give us an idea. Yeah. You mentioned reprisal. Give us an idea of physician reprisal for any any doctor that stepped out of line. Yeah, so um, around around about the time of the mandates, there was a huge uh, a huge demand for um, vaccine exemptions, and the, the I mean, in Australia, I don't know about overseas, but the whole thing of vaccine exemptions I found very frustrating because because fundamentally, no treatment in medicine should be compulsory, and therefore, an exemption itself is kind of a crazy idea, but there was a pre-existing system in Australia for writing um, Medicare exemptions uh, for vaccines, and so that was that was the real requirement. Employers were demanding them left, right, and centre. Um, if you were going to show up to work without your vaccinations after about October 2021, so the demand for exemptions was huge. Many of our doctors wrote numerous uh ex exemptions you had to be a gp to write the official ones i wrote many or assisted many as many as i could but some of our gps were um, essentially reported uh, for writing exemptions and when i say reported uh, that's a notification and it is typically anonymous in australia an example might be a uh, an employer uh, receives an exemption um, and a letter from a GP, which the patient presents to them. That employer can then uh, literally make a notification, which is anonymous, to APRA, uh, stating that, that that doctor is an anti-vaxxer or something to that effect. And that basically would result in a very stressful investigation and on some occasions suspension, i.e. loss of livelihood, and very often this this might be hard to understand or hard to <laughs> hard for an American audience, but very often without a court case, so no oversight by a tribunal, um, just the medical board making that decision in effect to take away livelihood. That happened to multiple people. Yeah, we, I can go call, through some specifics. In, in the United States, we call that a lack of due process. That, that there's no yeah. you know there's no review board. Well, did did any doctors get uh, decertified or have their license suspended because they treated COVID patients uh, as an outpatient? Well, it's a very uh, interesting point. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Um, the the first people to really be targeted included Dr. Uh, Mark Hobart, uh, who had been outspoken and fearless and he continues to fight and he's taken his dispute with APRA through the Victorian Supreme Court and is uh, has been um, thwarted in taking it to a higher court, the High Court of Australia, but is trying to appeal that. Other doctors have primarily been uh, 
uh, targeted because of their free speech either online or in public. Uh, one of them is Dr William Bay, who is taking his dispute up to the High Court of Australia. And it's very important that we that we support people like Dr Bay. Uh, I myself, for a variety of reasons, was suspended over a year ago. So I haven't been able to, to practice um, in Victoria uh, in either in either public or private, uh, unfortunately. So that's been uh, that's been a personal journey for me. But on the other hand, um, a great number of doctors are taking a stand. More and more doctors uh, are joining together. I'm part of an association of over 600 members. That's um, Australian Medical Professional Society. But there are other groups that I've mentioned. And I think increasingly solidarity. One of the things we're very excited, I mean, I must say, Peter, when, when you came to Australia, that was very important for our country uh, to have someone like yourself galvanising uh, the doctors and the public. So thank you for that. I will say we're getting Dr. Asim Malhotra um, in uh, from May 27th to about the 10th of June. He'll actually be able to visit six capitals, including Canberra. So much like yourself, but we're we're um, very excited about uh, Dr. Asim Malhotra's tour of Australia. You know what was effective, Chris, is that we have Melissa McCann in our uh, entourage, and uh, perhaps with Malhotra, there can also be Australian doctors um, to yeah. assist. With. Malhotra is an interesting case study. He's been on the McCullough Report. He's convinced his dad had progressive atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease related to the vaccine. He now has no living relatives. His brother has died with Down syndrome. His mom has died of cancer. Dad died of the vaccine. And he did his mm. own analyses, had to really do the risk-benefit analysis. He took the vaccine himself. He formally promoted it. Now he's come out and he's being honest with the world. He's really set things on fire. He's uh, very much loved in the United States. He just went on Joe Rogan, which is our number one yeah podcaster in america and he uh, did terrific i've done programs live programs with him in dallas as well as in delhi india and um it'd be great if he can get support from the australian doctors chris but yeah. what did you do i mean i want to clarify it for the record what did you do to get suspended you're kind of the you know one of the bad boys yeah my um my complaint was uh, again and anonymous notification from a hospital regarding a single patient that I had treated uh, for COVID-19 as an outpatient. So it was it was um, complicated, but that was frowned upon to treat patients um, uh, in an ambulatory setting was frowned upon. There were there were numerous things in the complaint which were fictitious and uh, and libelous. So, uh, however, I wasn't given a fair hearing. My own approach uh, might be a little bit different. I, um, I felt I have felt that I need to uh, fight um, fight this using you know my my free speech, uh, which is now actually paradoxically uh, not hindered because I'm not I'm not uh, there's nothing more they can do to me. I head <laughs> up. Yeah, so I um, I'm the president of the Australian Medical Professional Society. We. We're essentially a volunteer organisation, but um, we we have a, a paid membership base as well. So it's 
it's been a great privilege. And as you say, there are many doctors. And when Dr. Malhotra comes, it will be he'll he'll be supported by numerous Australians with expertise uh, and experience. And so, yes, it will be, I think, very enriching for Australians to attend. Um, and they'll get to see that and get to understand the story of Australian resistance um, more through that. Chris, what is going on? How could so many Australian doctors go along with this narrative and not treat their patients, encourage the vaccines, turn a blind eye to vaccine injury and death? What's going on? What's going on is um, certainly complicated and, and undoubtedly has some powerful psychological aspects. Uh, knowing that there's a threat to your life, livelihood if you go down a certain line of speaking uh, affects how you think. You know, free, lack of free speech is essentially lack of free thought. So I think that's that's a really dominant thing. However, there's also there's also the daily reality in clinical practice of seeing patients who can often trace their problems to a dose of a vaccine. There's also greater and greater visibility of vaccine-injured patient people in Australia. We've had uh, an increasing uh, number of good articles uh, in the mainstream media just giving some individual story. And quite recently, uh, a young 21-year-old, Natalie Boyce, her story was unfortunately fatal. She, uh, you may recall, uh, had at the age of 15, an antiphospholipid syndrome diagnosis. She got, I think, two or three shots of an mRNA vaccine and passed away with a heart attack mm. uh, in, in a hospital in which it really wasn't recognised. So all those, I mean, that, that story alone illustrates our predicament. Um, when, when we refuse to look at mechanisms, we're going to miss... Uh, um, as it you know as it evolves and as, in a phase where we could actually step in and potentially save someone at the uh, and on the other hand the story the visibility of this group of individuals at least in Australia is more and more and politically vaccine injured people are becoming uh, harder and harder to hide and an interesting development in that in that whole saga has been that a former head of the AMA Dr Karen Phelps um, in Sydney, came out with her story in, in December 2021, uh, sorry, 2022, end of last year. Uh, and because she was on the, maybe I would say the, the left and the progressive side of politics, that has had a particular impact in Australia because um, I think that, I think that the, the progressives are pr probably more likely to not admit to the problem uh that's just based on my experience but i have i have found it extraordinarily different since then um almost the the penetration of awareness of her story is huge it's huge in among our politicians here um and that presents a huge a huge opportunity uh, down under uh for for getting we're getting uh, justice and becoming the champions of the vaccine injured. You mentioned Dr. Melissa McCann, an absolute hero uh, of Australian medical practice. She's a GP in the Wit Sundays, but has worked tirelessly with lawyers to 
prepare a class action, and that has been um, that's a class action for vaccine injured people. Uh, we've got to bring this to a close. So why don't you list off uh, some some support areas where we can help out? Sure. So um, AMPS, the Australian Medical Professional Society, uh, takes donations. Uh, they're gratefully received. We use every penny for for the cause. Uh, we do events uh, and we make we communications. Um, and we're sponsoring the Asim Al Hotra tour. Uh, that's number one. There's, uh, I'll, I'll get you the links for Dr. Mark Hobart and Dr. William Bay's uh, actions, as well as Melissa McCann, the class action. I'd say those four are to me very high priority here in Australia. Um, and I'll mention one more. Uh, and I want to, uh, Peter, hopefully book book some time with you in the future. Uh, to go through this as well. It's called myvaccineinjury.com.au. Uh, this is not live yet, but the My Vaccine Injury campaign it should be live within about two weeks, around about the 20th of May. This is really going to change things, and I can explain it in more detail, and it's certainly something that we could work towards doing in other countries. Essentially, it's going to be an ability of... It's going to enable um, people affected by vaccines themselves or people who are carers or maybe bereaved people to tell their story directly to their uh, MPs, their federal uh, members of parliament, and in a way in which we can essentially keep the receipts. The, the, the campaign will be able to know exactly how many uh, emails have been sent and received, and we'll be able to follow that up um, with... Yeah, with politicians. So I could explain it in more detail. Very excited, but that's something which will also be needing donations, and I'll try and uh, give you a link for that. Well, that's been a terrific summary. We want to do everything we can to help our our brethren down in uh, Australia. Australia is so similar to America in so many ways, uh, but such a shocking divergence in terms of how the pandemic was handled. Our, our hearts were broken as we saw things uh, play out, you know, when, by, by the time I went in February, th things were largely back to, to normal, although I think the the emotional scars are there. People have been professionally damaged, uh, like yourself. Uh, you know, I've taken it on damage here, but I've been able to maintain in practice. And every time I, I take a professional hit, Chris, I get stronger and I get louder. And I think you're doing the same thing. I've been so honored to have you on the McCullough Report. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report.